Thanks, friends, again for this beautiful opportunity to be here. Let me invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. While you're turning there, let me just simply say this by way of introduction. We use this passage a lot. You're probably very familiar with it, but maybe more familiar with verses 8, 9, and 10 because those are the verses that we use uh, to uh, proof text for our beloved doctrine of grace, that it, uh, it's by God's grace that we are saved, not because of our good works. And so we cling to this verse. We use it quite often when we are defending the doctrines that we hold to as Reformed thinkers. But verses 1 through 7 actually have something, another beautiful doctrine to give to us that many times we overlook because we just jump to verses 8, 9, and 10. So today I want to begin in verse 1, 1 through 10, to show you a couple of things, a couple of beautiful doctrines that hinge on one precious three-letter word in the English alphabet, perhaps the most precious word in the alphabet that we could ever hear apart from any kind of direction to uh, our loving Heavenly Savior. What is that three-letter word? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm about to show you. I'm about to tell you. Out of love and affection, if you are able, join me in standing for the reading and then the preaching of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you once all lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But... But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love for us, with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you indeed that this is your word, and there are two beautiful doctrines here, not only the doctrine of grace, but the doctrine of our union with you. So open our eyes to behold beautiful things, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 100th or the 1,000th time, but open our eyes to behold it today, we pray, for your praise and your glory. Through Christ our Lord, we pray, amen. Please, friends, be seated. In the course of my almost 41 years of marriage to Jennifer, she and I have bought and rehabbed several houses. Jennifer, you may remember, having been a member here for some time, was or is an interior designer. And so we would get a house and we would do that project according to her plan. And then she needed a new project. We would sell that house and we would find another one. And we would do the same thing over again. And we've done that over the course of 41 years multiple times. 
Sometimes they've been very, very small. We've painted this wall or that wall. We've changed some carpet. We put in a ceiling fan. We put in some new fixtures, things like that. But other times, we have had dramatic and huge different rehab projects. I'm talking about going down to the studs, down to lath. I'm talking about knocking out walls and moving walls, redesigning even the flow of houses, major, major projects. One particular project we did was uh, an old house built right after the turn of the century, about 1901, in, uh, just outside of downtown St. Uh, Louis. I had graduated from, from seminary. I took my first church, Covenant Church, in down, or just outside of St. Louis. We bought this house uh, almost just a couple of miles outside of downtown, an old three-story Victorian home with this beautiful wraparound porch. It was a gorgeous home. But the home had been purchased in the 30s, and the family that purchased, purchased it didn't do anything until we bought it in the early 2000s. All the vegetation had grown up all around it. The trees would hold the water. The water would drip for days, and it rotted out this beautiful wraparound porch that went around the whole house. It took us six months to decide if we were going to buy this house because this was going to be a huge project. But we eventually did. And we, the guy that, uh, the nephew that sold us the house or was acting for the family was actually a carpenter. And we, part of the negotiation was for him to change, to fix this rotted out, rotten wood on the corner of the wraparound porch. It made the turn and there was this huge hole where the wood had just rotted out and fallen down into the ground underneath. But the wood was all lap and gap, and by that I mean there was one uh, pieces of wood on the side that had a, a lap, and the other one had a gap, and you slide this wood into each other. But the problem with lap and gap is that once you start that, you've got to go all the way to the very end. You can't just stop it right in the middle because of the lap and the gap. So you've got to carry it all the way to the end. So he did. He got it all there, covered it all the way to the very end. We primed it. We painted it. It was beautiful. We were, we were loving every minute of it. We cut the trees down right in the very front, and it had this beautiful front porch, wider than the Lord's table here. And as you walked up the steps to this beautiful, ornate front door, glass front door, right in the very top, the very top step was a piece of rotten wood that was about two feet long and about four feet wide. And I thought to myself, man, I don't want to have to take that rotten wood out and run it all the way over to the end of the porch. All that wood is good. I just want to deal with this one piece. So I was telling my friend across the street, we all had friends, <clears throat> similar friends, like electricians and plumbers and carpentry people. And he said, oh, Brian, no, you don't have to take that and go all the way to the end. Just go down here to, go down here to AutoZone and buy some Bondo. And come back, mix the Bondo together, put it down, let it harden, sand it down, paint it, bada bing, bada boom. You'll be in, you'll be out. It'll be great. I thought, I'm so glad I had that wonderful idea. So I made my way down to the AutoZone and I bought, I've never purchased Bondo before and haven't purchased it since and you're about to find out why. Bondo is, uh, is two cans like Chef Boyardee used to be. There's a can on top of the can. And you take this, this normal kind of gummy, loose mixture, and you add it with this special agent on the top, and the instructions clearly say, sand it all down, get it clean, get it dry, 
And when you add the special agent to the bondo, it will begin to hard immediately. So you need to apply it, get it down so that it will harden and then you can sand it and let it do its work. Well, in my 30-something years of wisdom back then, I thought to myself, I'm in no hurry. I'm not putting a fender back together again on a car. So I will just take... I'll take this can, I'll I'll take the special agent, I'll just put it aside over here, and I'll take just this flimsy stuff, and and I'll just use this and let it dry over time. So I laid it all out, I went in the house, spent the whole night, rested, came back out the next morning, (laughs) soft and gummy, Uh, uh uh-oh. So I laid some more on top, sanded it down, said, I'll wait a week this time. You can't fool me. I'm going to do it. I have all kinds of time. So I waited several days, went back out. It did it again. And I came to the realization, friends, and this is why I don't use Bondo today. If you omit the special agent to this agent, you have no Bondo at all. And that is exactly what Paul is telling us in this particular passage. Here is our life, dead in sins and transgressions, in bondage to the things of the world, condemned through the wrath of God. But God, rich in mercy, added the special agent and made us alive, set us free, and poured out his kindness to us, on us, in Christ. Paul does something beautiful here, friends, in these first seven verses. He gives us a picture of what we once were. He gives us the before and the after. You've seen those commercials, right? Before, I took this magic pill and then now became that. (laughs) Doesn't work. But it does here. It works perfectly here. He gives us this picture of before. Verse 1, you were dead in your sins and transgressions. Verse 2, you were in bondage to your sin. Verse 3, you were condemned. But then verse 4 is the hinge verse from the old to the new, from the before to the after. But, but God being rich in mercy now, dead in sin, made us alive in bondage. He set us free, condemned, now lavishes his kindness on us in Christ. So let's look at these. See, embrace this beautiful doctrine on Pentecost Sunday of the work of our union with Christ, the work of the Spirit to add this special agent so that we're not flimsy and weak and anymore, but we are strong and firm and living the life that God designed that we should live until he comes again in the fullness of his glory. Verse 1, look at it. We were dead in our sins and in our transgressions. But we ask ourselves, how dead is dead? Now, we have been debating this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. How dead is dead? Well, Paul answers this for us. In the third century, fourth century, two guys that you probably know, Pelagius and Augustine. And Pelagius believed that Uh, that God would never send one individual to die for others. It couldn't be done. And that God would never give requirement to individuals and not give them the ability to keep those requirements. So he came to the conclusion that mankind, humankind, are basically well. And what we do from this life determines uh, our fate, if it's going to be bad or good. We are well. Well, good night, nurse. You can't turn on any news station and see that... 
There's no well people in the world today, right? I mean, you even look in the mirror from time to time, and because of Pentecost Sunday, the indwelling of the Spirit, you look at that face that seems to be getting older every time I look in the mirror. But I'm uh, the guilt of the Spirit, yeah, yeah, guilt of confessing of, uh, convicting us of our sin. So we have come to the conclusion now we're not well, we're just sick. We're just sick people, and if we take the right medicine, then we'll be well. If I read a little more of my Bible, if I attend church more, give more money, volunteer at VBS, uh, serve my neighbor, mow my neighbor's next, uh, yard next door, whatever, then I won't be sick anymore, but then I'll be well. And then Augustine came along. Augustine, following the words of the Apostle Paul, said, We're not sick. We're not well. We are dead dead in our sins and transgressions. That's how dead we are, not sick and not well. But God, rich in mercy. Verse 4, he gives us the before picture, dead in your sins and transgressions. Verse 4, but God, and then goes on in verse 5, rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead in our uh, transgressions. He made us alive together. How? Look at it. With Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. Our union with Christ. Paul, or or Jesus, had even given us an illustration of how dead is dead as we're asking that question. In John chapter 11, you remember the account of his good friend Lazarus. Now, it was a physical death, no doubt. And Paul is talking about a spiritual death here in Ephesians. But you will remember in John chapter 11 that Jesus finds out a few days before that Lazarus is sick. And so he postpones his trip to Bethany until he finds out that Lazarus is dead. And in between those two accounts, we have one of the I am sayings. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So Jesus, taking the illustration of a physical death, applies application to our spiritual death for those of us who believe. So Jesus makes his way to Bethany after Lazarus is dead. Mary and Martha are are there. His disciples are with him. And what does Jesus do? He walks up and he says, roll that stone away. And we have the account of Martha In the King James Version, that version that I grew up on, I love what she says in response. Jesus says, roll the rock away. How dead is dead? Martha says, but Lord, he stinketh. He stinketh. That's how dead he is. He's so dead, he stinks. That's what the picture of death is. We were dead in our sins. We stink in our sins and transgressions. But Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and out he comes. He was dead, but now he is alive again. And Jesus says, take off those garments, those grave clothes. They take them off. John chapter 12, the very next chapter, Mary and Martha throw a party for their brother who was once dead and now is alive again. And all the disciples and friends are gathered there, lounging at the table. Wouldn't you have loved to have been at this particular uh, dinner party? Man, I would have. Hey, welcome. Good to see you again. Hadn't seen you in a long time. Oh, Lazarus, how was your week this week? (laughs) Well, I was dead. What? Yeah. (sighs) But God, rich in mercy, made me alive. In Christ Jesus, but God. 
The second one now. Though he goes back to the before in verse 2. In verse 2 he says, you once walked this way. And three times in the Greek he uses the word following. You were following the course of the world. You were following the prince of the power of the air. And you were following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, don't forget who this letter, to whom this letter is written. It's to the church in Ephesus, a general letter. In Acts chapter 19, we have actually the account of Paul planting this particular church. In summary, Acts 19 says this to give us a picture of how much in bondage these individuals were. A great big rock had fallen from the heavens and into Ephesus, right into town. And this rock had the shape of a female, a woman. They built a huge temple. They took this rock and they set it up in the center of this temple. They called the temple Artemis, the goddess Artemis. And they bowed down in worship to this rock over and over. They were following, following, following. That's how much in bondage they were. Paul and company comes along and they plant this particular church. And the way, as we read in the New Testament, the way began to take off. People were coming savingly to the work of Jesus Christ. They were being born again, being baptized. And suddenly they weren't showing up to bow down to this rock from heaven anymore. Merchants used to sell little bitty trinkets, little bitty rocks of the goddess Artemis on the street so you could set these things up in your, uh, in your uh, home to bow down in your home as well as the big one in the temple. And suddenly now, individuals are not buying these rocks anymore because they've been converted to the, to the work, the finished work of Jesus. And they're losing money. So they make their way to the Bema where justice is pronounced and they begin to plead their case and a riot breaks out. You remember that? Acts chapter 19. A riot breaks out such that they eventually make their way to this 20,000 seat auditorium, an amphitheater. I've been there. It's huge. And they shout for two hours, Artemis, Artemis, the goddess of the Ephesians. That's how much in bondage they were. And friends, doesn't that, before the special agent is applied, isn't that our life too? In our We love the darkness more than the light. We love our sin more than our Savior. We follow, follow, follow. But God, rich in mercy, made us alive. And then also, what did he do? He made us alive and now he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. How? In Christ Jesus. Now we are no longer in bondage, but we have been set free and raised to new life. And not not, not only that, look at it. We're raised up with him and we are seated with him. But where is Christ today? We'll go back to chapter 1, verse 20. God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at His, God's, right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, far above every name that is named, that not only in this age, but the age that is to come. And He has put all things under His feet and gave Him head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. 
Friends, listen. Special agent applied in our bondage. Now we have been raised to new life. Now in Christ, Paul uses this phrase, in Christ or with Christ, 164 times in the 13 books that he pins in the New Testament. And he's talking about our union. He now raised us up with him. Where is he? He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. So listen, friends, in a very real way. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. Christ is at the right hand of God the Father. I, in part, am at the right hand already of God the Father. And he has triumphed over all. He's put everything under his feet. So that means for us today, friends, it may not mean that our suffering goes away, our pain goes away. You may still get a bad diagnosis next week. But it means this, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then you have triumphed already also. The gospel applied by the work of the Spirit. I am successful. I'm saved. I'm in the double hand, double hands of God, in the hand of Christ, in the hand of God, doubly joined forever. Nobody can snatch me from there. So no matter how bad it gets, and it gets bad, we are victors. There is coming a day when He will come again in the fullness of His glory, and we will be raised in fullness then, and he will dwell among us. Now, listen, I could stop there, couldn't I? But I see the clock, and you don't. I still have time. So I'm going to move to the number three, all right? Here's the third one, verse three. Among whom we all once lived. Now, Paul, Paul moves to the plural pronoun. He moved from you to all of us. Now, all of us lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And we hear that and we think, oh my gosh, I don't want to hear that. Wrath? Deserving God's wrath? So we say in our minds, if you're anything like me, no, no, I choose not to receive the wrath because you know what? I'm not that bad. At least I'm not as bad as that person over there. And we love to compare ourselves with one another, don't we? Putin, doing what he's doing, now that's bad. He deserves the wrath of God, but I'm a good person. I've done good things. God's lucky to have me on his team, you know? And we, so we compare ourselves to one another. But listen, friends, if you do that, if you are comparing yourself to others and you are finding that you are better than others, then that is nothing more than works righteousness. If you are achieving status above other individuals by what you do, that is works righteousness and the Bible knows nothing of that. Nothing. We compare ourselves to others. We compare so that we can free ourselves from a little guilt because we don't mind a little bit of bad in the world, right? Nobody sees this. Nobody, nobody's getting hurt with this. So a, a little bit, a little, from time to time, a little bit of bad into the world. It's not hurting anybody. Nobody can see it. But that's not what Paul is describing. He's not talking about a little bit of bad of us in the world. He's talking about bad in us internally, not just our running out and coming back, but our internal, apart from that special agent being applied, not only dead, not only in bondage, but condemned now because of God's wrath. 
It's like the poker player who shoves all of the chips into the center and says, I am all in. That's us. But God, but God who is rich in mercy, made us alive. He freed us by raising us to new life. And oh, dear friends, look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he now might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness to us. How? In Christ Jesus. Because of our union with Christ, that special agent that is applied now, not condemnation, but kindness, the kindness of God that he lavishes on us. Friends, listen, please. Jesus Christ did not come to this earth to bear your sins in his body, to die for that sin, to appease an angry heavenly father in heaven, to make him love you again. No, 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 a thousand times no. Paul begins his book, chapter 1, in love. He predestined us before the foundation of the world. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the high priestly prayer by Jesus himself, John 17, Father, I am in you and you are in me. The love I have for you, you have for me. And Father, the love that I have for them is the same love that you have for me because I am in them and they are in me. Jesus didn't come to finish the work on the cross to make God love you. He already loves us. But God, who drew us together in our union, now lavishes His kindness to us. This is how we live. We live in the fullness of knowing. It's not because I'm better than someone else or not as bad as that person. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Listen to what A.W. Tozier said. He said... We please Him, God. We please God most, not when we frantically try to make ourselves good, but by throwing ourselves into His arms with all our imperfections and believing that He understands everything and He loves us still. That is the freedom of the gospel of grace, that I am not trying to make God love me. He already loves me. I'm not trying to improve my, God's affection for me. He already loves me 100%. I cannot improve that. And so I rest in that. But God. So this means for us today, now we get to our doctrine of our, uh, uh, the doctrine of grace. Because Paul wants to be certain. Now this new life that you have been given, this before, has now become the after because of the hinge. But God, rich in mercy, now how do we live? Do we live because of works, by our own good works? No. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one can boast. What does the word this in verse 8 What is it connected to? Is it connected to grace and salvation and faith? The Greek syntax actually would allow that, but it would also allow this. Grace, by definition, is a gift, isn't it? It is the unmerited favor that God gives to us. So it's already a gift. And if salvation is connected, it's by grace you've been saved. If salvation is connected to grace, it would be redundant for Paul to say, That salvation is not grace as well. 
The this, in my mind, is connected to faith. And this not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God, the faith, the ability to open our eyes to be opened to see that we can't live this. We have to live like this, to see that this is the work that he's done, brought me into union with him because of his mercy, but God, who is rich in mercy. So we are now not living by works, but friends, we're living as Christ's workmanship. That's what Paul goes on to say. The very life that I live is evidence to the watching world around me, not that I am earning my salvation, but that salvation and faith have already been given to me and now it is evidence, my life is evidence before a dying world that I believe, and they should too, that this gospel works. The very life we live, the workmanship created to do good works, not to earn God's favor of salvation, but as the direct result of it, evidence that I am living like this, but God, not like this. Henry Morehouse was a a pastor and a social worker in the late 1800s, early 1900s, in the in the deepest, darkest parts of the slums in London. And one day, he he wrote an account of one day standing in the street one evening and seeing a little girl come up from a basement steps carrying a great big pitcher of milk. And as she got into the middle of the street, one brick was a little higher than the other, and she tripped over that brick, and she fell down, and, and the pitcher broke, and all of the milk ran down into the, into the gutter. She burst into tears, crying. He ran over to console her, but she couldn't be consoled. My mommy is going to be so mad at me, she kept saying over and over again. Morehouse finally said, oh, little girl, look. The pieces aren't that small. They're big. I think we could put this back together again. And so he begins to put the pieces together, and suddenly she stops crying. She thinks there's, there's great hope. This, this weird, strange man is actually putting this picture back together again until he pushes one piece too hard, and it breaks all over. And again, she bursts into tears. Oh, no, 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 he said. Let's do it together. You hand me the pieces and I'll put it together. And so they began to work together until they got it all done except for the handle. And he handed the little girl the handle and said, you put that on. And she pushed and again, it all fell. And again, she burst into tears. Morehouse reached down and he scooped her up off of the cobblestone uh, road. He carried her down the street to a place that he knew sold beautiful big pictures, and he bought one. He carried her back upstairs, down those steps into the basement, where he had it filled with fresh milk, back up those stairs, up the street to her house, up the steps, set her down on the front porch, opened the door and said, Now, little girl, your mommy's not going to be mad at you, is she? He said he was received with a beautiful affirmation as she turned around, a smile on her face, and said... Oh, no, because this picture is so much better than the picture we had before. Friends, let's stop trying to put our picture back together again. And let's embrace the better picture that God gives to us instead of living in our sin and in in condemnation and in bondage. Let's embrace 
the very thing that God has given. Let's embrace the picture that God gives to these treasures, jars of clay, and let us live in this gospel as evidence that it actually really does work. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sweet gospel that is ours in Christ Jesus. We shall never grow tired or weary of hearing all about it. So thank you for telling us about it again today. But we pray, Father, now by the work of your spirit that reigns and dwells within us, that we would go into this world and we would live it and that others would see it lived out in us and it would be that very thing that you would use to draw them savingly to yourself till the day you come again in the fullness of your glory. Do it for your sake, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.